0: Welcome, everyone, to Inspired by Math. In this podcast series, I interview people who are inspired by math and who are inspiring others. I'm very pleased today to have with me Chuck Adler, physics professor and author of a new Princeton University Press book titled Wizards, Aliens, and Starships, and subtitled Physics and Math in Fantasy and Science Fiction. Welcome, Chuck.
1: I thank you. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me here.
0: Yeah, yeah. I am um very excited to to be talking to you about this book because as as I'm sure you and and all my listeners know, I'm I love math and I'm a ge- math geek and I I wouldn't call myself a science fiction geek, but I think I probably like science fiction more than the you know, average um person. And we were talking, um, Chuck and I were talking a little bit before this, um, before we started recording, and, and Star Trek is is my favorite show. And um, so I think we're, maybe we'll have some little side commentary um, about the technology behind um, Star Trek and whether that's feasible or not. What, what do you think?
1: Oh, I, yeah, I, I'd be very happy to talk about that. I mean, the uh, I think the biggest things that you can, the two big things about Star Trek, or well, three big things, I guess, are Number one, the transporter, um, which in the old, the, the, the transporter was kind of an interesting thing in the original series in that they didn't have money. The big reason back in the 1960s in the original series, the reason they ended up the transporter was that they didn't have actually money to, sh- to shoot film of shuttlecraft taking off from the spacecraft and landing on planets and coming back up. So they had to have this way of transporting people around to the planet. And so they invented this transporter, which in science fiction is mostly called teleportation. Um, and it's kind of an interesting thing from a, science, from a scientific point of view, because teleportation is kind of fun because it involves so many of these sort of basic scientific principles. It's not highly plausible. Because you have this issue that you know, well, if you what what transporter does? You're turning people into energy, which probably means that you're killing them, and then beaming them somewhere else, and then reassembling them somewhere else. You've got this also this big infra, this big problem involving you know entropy. You're tearing these people apart. Then you have to figure out how to put them back together again, in a very very distant place, and not exactly obvious how you do that. But it's it's a cool idea, and so you start thinking about these problems involved with it. And you think, oh okay. oh, okay, well, all right. What are some of the other issues involved with it? And you start thinking, oh, well, you know, that's a lot of energy match. Because you know, you're turning people into energy, well, E equals MC squared, so one kilogram of mass is the same thing as, you know, nine, 90,000 trillion joules of energy. You know, that's about as much energy as I think the U.S. uses in one hour or something, something out of order. Hmm. You're imagining in an this, you're imagining this enormous amount of energy, you're turning people into energy, you've got to manage it somehow, you've got to push them somewhere else, you've got to reassemble them, and if you know, and even if you are like, if it's like, you know, you're thinking about this, well, what if it's not 100% successful? Then you've probably got this huge explosion going off because you've got, you know, you're missing 1% of the energy that goes into this huge, big boom. I don't know, was that very coherent, what I just said there?
0: yeah yeah so 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 it's a, so that's a great story so it's 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 a fun technology it uh-huh. was one of these things that was invented i guess by um by gene roddenberry i think but 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 didn't teleportation happen before oh, yeah oh yeah sorry it's it's yeah it's, it's a science fiction staple sorry yeah right um, right it's a staple in 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 science fiction and and but it but it it was probably popularized if if that's fair to say, yeah. By, by shows like Star Trek,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay, um, so let's let's go back a step. I mean, you know, we'll be we'll be talking more during the next hour or so about these um, various cool technologies and you know, plausible or or um, not plausible. But um, tell our listeners a little bit more about you. So I know that 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 you're. You're a physics professor, and you sent me um, a little bit of a bio, but, but, but in your own words. Tell, tell people a little bit about your background and how it was that you got excited about physics and became a physics professor, and what's the tie-in to science fiction?
1: Well, I, I actually um, – originally, I knew that I wanted to be a scientist because I started reading science fiction. Um, I discovered science fiction kind of in an early age. We are we just talking about Star Trek. The first science fiction that I can actually remember reading, um, which was, I think, something like the age of, I don't know, 10, maybe even earlier. I, I don't remember anymore. Um, I started reading the James Blish novelizations or serializations, whatever you want to call them, the stories that he wrote based on the original series episodes. And it's it, it's actually a little weird because I actually started reading these before I even saw the TV show. Now, I, we had we had, and I I don't even know why we had a copy of this in the house because I certainly didn't buy it. But my father hated science fiction. We had this copy of James Blish's adaptations of the Star Trek stories, and I started reading them. And I started and I started thinking, this is really neat. And then I discovered there was this TV show. Now at this point, you know, the early 1970s which was in reruns. You know, it was showing the original series. You could watch them basically almost every day. So I started watching them, and I started getting really hooked into these neat ideas, you know, you know, traveling, across, you know traveling across the galaxy, going to other, you know, meeting other intelligent alien races, you know, traveling faster than the speed of light, all these neat ideas. And that, that really made me want to be a scientist. Um, and I started getting interested in science because of these very weird, you know, ideas about science fiction. Um, I didn't want to become a physicist until I took after I took my first physics course in high school, though. we got I got very lucky in that case. The teacher that I had there was just this amazing physics teacher. His name was Mr. Saunders. Um, he's dead now, unfortunately, but uh, we had we had this class with him. He was just this, the best one of the best teachers I've ever had, and he just made physics really interesting. He made it come alive. A friend of mine who went to Caltech. And um a friend of mine who was in this class with us, who went to caltech for his for uh, for his college, met Richard Feynman and actually told me once that Mr. Saunders reminded him of Richard Feynman. Hmm. Um, he was really just this amazing teacher knew a lot about physics, was very interested in the subject, and just really fantastic teacher. we 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 got two years of physics in high school from Mr. Saunders. The class loved it so much we actually petitioned the school to give us a third year, which they did. Um, and I think something like two thirds of the people in that class went on to careers either in physics or engineering, um, just because of the inspiration this guy gave us.
0: That's awesome. Um,
1: yeah, so it, um, so it was really good. And it, it just also tells you the importance of really good teachers early on as well, because, um, if I hadn't had him, I probably would have gone into science anyhow, but, I might have gone into something other than something other than physics. For a while, I was thinking about doing pure mathematics, for example. And um, but you know, because of this one guy, just you know, he point this was when he taught physics. I, I realized this was clearly what I wanted to do, and I've never read it since then. Um, when I, as far as teaching went, becoming a professor of physics, um, I guess it was. Always kind of in the back of my mind, it, it never really became solidified until one day when I was talking to, with my dissertation advisor about careers, post-graduate you know, post-graduate careers. When I was working my PhD, I was talking with my advisor at one point, and I you know, mentioned to him about several different things I was thinking about. And he looked at me straight and said, you know, no, you're going to become a professor. It, it's pretty obvious. And I don't know what made him say that, but at that point, it just kind of clicked. I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. And I think it was also clear at that point that I also wanted to be someone who was, I think, more at a, an undergraduate college than at a big research place. Um, just because I liked the kind of the, the teaching aspect of it, even though I hadn't done a whole lot of teaching, I, it, it was something that I, I was pretty clear I wanted to do. Um,
0: you know, it's it it's it's interesting hearing your story because I, you know, um, I had a really good trying to remember if it was, it was probably in high school, really, really good physics teacher in in high school. But then when I went to college, and I went to one of the, you know, big name universities, mm-hmm. and I had a very difficult time with physics, I was a math mm-hmm. major. And in order to get a math degree, I would have to take a bunch of physics classes. And, and I ended up dropping out of, mm-hmm. oh. of, of university. And I mean, not just because of physics, but it was, you know, I, I you know with my tail between my legs i have to admit that that was one of the subjects that was really hard for me and what was difficult for me was that i would have these you know we'd have these problem sets to do mm-hmm. but i didn't have any intuitive grounding in any of the problems that i was trying to solve so so what what i like to tell people is i could have been off by many orders <laughs> of magnitude and and I would have no idea, right? It's it's like you know, uh-huh. you know, I don't know what the mass you know of an atom is, and you know, I could be off by ten to the tenth power <laughs> or ten to the minus tenth power, you know, several, you know, many orders of of magnitude, and 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 it and I wouldn't know that,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and that's what was really hard is I never felt like I got grounded, right. you know, and I and I have since learned that there are different ways to teach physics, and that there are ways to teach physics. Where you can really get grounded in the subject mm-hmm.
1: well yeah the um, it's it's interesting you mentioning that because this is it, well two 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 things spring to mind when you said that um, number one, college teaching is such a mixed bag because the the, the basically the only thing you have to have is the doctorate to become a professor at college, you have to have a doctorate in the subject, and most places. You know, if you want to get tenure, you're going to do research. You're not actually going to be focused on teaching, and so the teachers you get are very, very much a mixed bag. You know, some of them are excellent, and some of them are just miserable. And it sounds like you had you had kind of experiences with, with some of the miserable ones because, um, one of the duties is to make sure that the students are actually learning the material. Um, you know, and a lot of the a lot of faculty in a lot of places don't take that all that seriously. Um. And we're not taught how to teach. This is something you actually, you know, as a faculty member, presumably you've spent the last five, six, seven years of your life when you're getting your PhD doing research and maybe done a a postdoc for another three years and learned how to do research after that. But most faculty members, most physicists especially, because, you know, arrogance runs very deep among a lot of physicists, will say, well, gee, you know, I, I, I did physics and physics is really hard. And teaching can't be that difficult compared to it. And so I'm I'm going to become a good, I'm going to be a good teacher because, you know, nothing is hard compared to physics. And that is the most wrong thing in the world. Teaching is really difficult compared to physics. Teaching well, teaching students well is actually the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. And learning how to teach well is just very, very, very hard, much harder than I think doing research in the sciences is.
0: Right, right. No, I, I, I believe it and I and, and I can I can see just you know I can I can hear in your voice and I can read in your book how you are passionate about the subject and passionate about the, the, the elementary aspects of the subject. So let me ask you um about the book. So let let's let's rewind sure. a little bit and in, in case it's not um obvious at this point what the book is about. Okay. Why don't, why don't you tell us what the book is about and I'm going to ask you who the audience is. Sure.
1: Um, Well, the book itself is, um, the book itself was meant to be something a little bit like other books. There are books out there like the, the physics of Star Trek and the physics of superheroes and the physics of Christmas and all these sorts of things. Um this book was meant to be at a little bit higher mathematical level than those were, because what I looked at, when you read through these books, you know, the phys- I like I these books. Um, I actually haven't read Physics of Star Trek, but I've read um, one or two similar things to it. And you look at these books, and they present these nifty scientific ideas, black holes, and time travel, and faster than light travel. Um, but they present them in a fairly general way. And it's sort of, they present sort of these nifty ideas of physics, you know, and these sort of weird out of these world ideas about physics, but they don't do it in a very quantitative way. They, they, they talk a lot about the sort of general principles of them, but they don't go through a lot of the, they don't go through a lot of the, the, the sort of the, the mathematical background that you need to kind of really understand them. And so, what I wanted to provide was was a book at a slightly higher level, you know, not nothing that involved an enormous, a, a really high level of mathematics, but something that was a little bit higher level that people could get a, get a better sense of what was going on. And so, in some sense, you you you're talking about a little bit about who the book was aimed for. In some sense, I wanted to write a book for the interested fan who wanted to go a little bit deeper into these ideas than than what a lot of the other books provided for. To some extent, also, I wanted to write a manual for people who were interested in writing science fiction—a resource that they could actually go into and say, "Well, I want to write a story about life on this world that we've, you know, we, this world we've just discovered." But how do I actually design this world? How do I actually make sure that everything that I'm writing is scientifically consistent? If I want them to get out there, how do I design a starship that's actually going to take them out there in a reasonable amount of time? You know, how do I actually put, how do I actually put together the story in such a way that it's scientifically accurate? And one of the things about that is that a lot of the books talk about the nifty way out there ideas, string theory or again, black holes or things like that. But that's ignoring the fact that most science fiction, you know, even though it has these kind of nifty far out ideas in there, most science fiction, the really good science fiction stories, also rely on a grounding of the physics that we already know. Most of the stuff you need in order to make a plausible story is already contained in Newton's laws of motion, or the theory—you know, or, or the theory of relativity—if you want to talk about star travel, or um, you know, the idea of a. The ideas of thermal physics, the idea of the Earth—you know—if you want to talk about planetary, you know, planets and how you design a planet to make it support life, the idea of the balance of radiation from, you know, from the sun hitting the Earth, radiating away from the Earth into space, and how that determines a planet's temperature.
0: So, so these—I sorry, go ahead. So, so let me play devil's advocate here. Mm-hmm, sure. So, if I were a science fiction writer, mm-hmm. why would I care? about whether the science is plausible or not? Well, because you have that word science in the title. Um, if you science fiction,
1: at least in my mind, it, it's a philosophical issue with me. Maybe, you know, maybe this is not... I'm sure, I know that everyone doesn't feel the same way, but it's a philosophical issue with me. So you've got that word science in the title, I guess the question is, if, you know, what is science fiction for, in some sense? If you want if you want me to get philosophical about it, um, my feeling about that is the best science fiction, the stuff that I've enjoyed at least the most, and, you know, here I can't speak for everyone else, but the stuff I've enjoyed the most is the stuff that actually looks at the implications that scientific discoveries and technolo- technological advancements have. Um, not just in the stories where people go out to the Alpha Centauri and, I don't know, uh, I, I, well, you know, not not. Uh, I, I mean, I, I like I like I like kind of these sort of adventure stories where we have to fight off the aliens who are trying to invade the Earth or whatever. But I think the more interesting ones are the ones that actually look at the implications of science. Well, let me give you one example. We we're talking about Star Trek earlier on. Um, one of my absolute favorite episodes of Star Trek um, was the Star Trek: The Next Generation episode. Measure of a man. Are you familiar with the episode?
0: Um, if you if you re- tell me uh, a little it, bit of the plot, it may it, come back to me.
1: Okay, if you remember from the from um, the Next Generation, we have the science officer on the Enterprise D or whatever it is is Data, who is an android. He's a, you know he's a fully functioning um, he's a fully functioning human shaped robot. Um, who you know, artificially intelligent, what have you? Who is many, even in some ways, uh, you know, very, very smart. Um, you know, he's, he's you know he basically you know he looks and acts more or less you know like like a you know, like a sentient being, like you know a, a human more or less. Um, the episode involves a an a scientist who wants to, I think, dissect him, take his brain apart. Study him and then put him back together, and try to figure out what makes him tick. And so he's gotten orders from Starfleet that allow him to do this. And he comes aboard the Enterprise to do this. And Captain Picard basically says, "Well, no, wait." He said, "One of my crew members can't do that. You can't take him apart to try to study what he's made of." Mm -hmm. And so there's a trial on board the Enterprise uh, with a representative from Star Trek, uh, 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 Starfleet, trying to decide if Data has. Human rights, the same way that any other alien species does, and they point Picard as I think his advocate, and they point right after uh, they point um, the first officer uh, William Riker as the um, as the prosecuting attorney, so to speak. Right. And so there are these arguments on both sides about whether Data is actually, you know, actually an intelligent being, and I found that very compelling. Um, because this is uh, you know they, they it was very intelligently written they it was not one of these episodes where they rely on this sort of techno babble sort of stuff. It was just very simply stated is you know what rights does this sapient artificially intelligence thing that we constructed that we built for you know does he have the same rights as any other as any other member of the federation does? And I found that it, I, I you know I, I thought that was just a great episode because it deals with the philosophical implications that scientific advancement has.
0: Right. Okay. So, yeah. Sorry.
1: Go ahead.
0: No, I, I I think that is, I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, you know, I was also going to make the point that the value of caring about you know whether the science is plausible or not is you know, but like in the example we've been talking about with the transporter, mm-hmm. is it would be very convenient, right? Whenever anybody's in trouble if they right. could transport themselves, <laughs> you know, back to the Enterprise, but they, I uh-huh. mean, they, they, they do make an effort to not make it be that easy. Right, yes.
1: Um, yeah, because uh, yeah, they, they're, they're often things like they can't transport through a forest field or something like that. Um, I, I will say that the transporter brings up another kind of issue, though, with one of the other episodes of The Next Generation. Um, my thing about science fiction is not necessarily that they get the science entirely correct, but that they play by they play fair. I guess is, is more um, a thing that, that I care about. Is that okay? Well, maybe the science isn't completely accurate. It is science fiction after all, not science, you know, not 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 a Nova special, or whatever. Um, but I do care that they play at least consistently. One thing which bugs me about Star Trek, and Star Trek: The Next Generation. Was that there was this one particular episode where there's a transporter malfunction and Captain Picard is regressed to a ten-year-old boy? Uh, did you see that episode? I don't. It was like fourth or fifth season. I don't. That
0: that, that sounds vaguely familiar, but right. but 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 I can imagine. Okay, and the, you know the the plot was I don't remember what the plot was. There's
1: somebody trying to take over the Enterprise. And Picard, as a 10 year old boy, has to organize the kids in the enterprise to repel the invader or something like that because all the adults have been taken over and the kids aren't viewed as a threat or whatever it was. It was some, there was some plot involving that. But, okay, so you step back and you think for a moment about this. Wow. We can make people younger with the transporter. This is the fountain of youth. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. transporter technology isn't that expensive. They're doing it all the time on the enterprise. They're transporting people around all the time they want to. So what is to prevent us from using a transporter basically to make people immortal? You can take people as they're getting older and make them artificially younger. This is an accident. But, you know, seriously, accidents can't... You can, people can figure out how these accidents happen. So why isn't why is old age a problem in the Federation anymore? Why, why, haven't, why don't they use the transporter to cure all illnesses, cure death, do what, you know, as far as that goes? And it always bothered me whenever I watched an episode beyond that point because it was never brought up again. You know, they, they did this thing it was never brought up again. As far as I can tell, it was never brought up again in any of the later episodes, in any of the later series. I didn't. We did. We discussed this. I actually had stopped watching at sometime early on in um, Deep Space Nine. But did you what You you watched? I guess uh, you said you you were a fan of um, Voyager, right?
0: Yeah, Voyager, and 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 also the the, the classic, right? The original Star right. Trek series. But was this point ever brought up in Voyager?
1: That you could use transporter
0: technology to make people younger. <sighs> I don't recall, but um, I've been watching reruns, and I still have oh another three <laughs> seasons um, to go. I mean, it, it's not it's not ringing a bell on, mm-hmm. on 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 the new series on on Voyager. But all right, so but let me ask you. So related mm-hmm. to this, so do how much in general do you think science fiction writers and movie makers care about whether their ideas are are plausible or not? <laughs> well, there's it's
1: kind of three different three different. Uh, issues here. Uh, there's, and they all actually have kind of somewhat different standards, uh, different different answers to that. Uh, movies, typically not at all. <laughs> there's some big exceptions to that, but movies, generally speaking, not at all. Um, TV shows, it's a mixed bag. It depends on the TV show, and I think it depends very much on the writer for a particular episode. I will say that I'm inclined to give science fiction on TV more leeway simply because the number of scripts that writers have to write every year. You're, you're writing, what, 13 to 20-odd scripts per season, and you got to churn out one sure. a week. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've been trying to give it a little bit more leeway. Science fiction novelists tend to be a lot more, uh, tend to pay a lot more attention to the science than than I do, the other two. Movies are just awful in general. Um, I, I had mentioned before, before we started the interview, that I, I, I wanted to... Um, Take mention say a little bit about Star Trek, uh, the recent Star Trek reboot movies. Um, if you look at, for example, um, the movie um, Star Trek Into Darkness, um, I, I rented it recently and, and just watched it a few weeks ago uh, because people were saying good things about it. I thought it was god awful. Um, not not necessarily because of the plot, but because Whoever was writing the movie, the, the the script for this, maybe it was several people, I don't know, but they were not paying attention to what they wrote, because they, when they wrote these things, well, okay, have you seen the movie? I have not. Okay, um, this will probably spoil a few things in there, but... They, they make they make use of what I guess from the first movie was called trans warp technology, and it, you know it, it's again it, you know I'm, I am one of these people who get a little upset by, by these things when I see them, so I'm, I'm going to I speak kind of vehemently about this stuff. But I you know it's stuff that I I do care about because um, the trans warp technology is a combination of warp drive and transporter, and so early on in the movie, a character named I think John Harrison. Who's played by Benedict Cumberbatch um, uses this transwarp technology to transport himself from Earth to the main planet in the Klingon Empire pretty much instantaneously. That's handy. Yeah, it's a nice it's a nice thing to be able to do. Um, now you start thinking about this, however, and some things start popping up. To you start thinking about some things. Here. First of all, okay. Ignore the, let's ignore the science for the moment behind that. Okay, you can do this. Well, first of all, hitting a moving planet from a distance of many light years away, if you start thinking about the precision, you need to be able to do that. You know, it's not just that he does this. It's that he does this with a precision, a required precision, because he's landing on some mountaintop you know, it shows this quick cut between, you know, he's initially standing watching this destruction he's caused on Earth, and then all of a sudden he warps away, reappears on the top of a mountaintop on the main planet of the Klingon Empire, many, many light years away. Well, if you're talking about the precision you need to do this, you're, you're hitting, like, a, 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 an area a few feet around. You need to do this precision because he's landing on top of a mountaintop, he makes a few feet missteps, he's tumbling down a mountainside. And so you're doing this over a distance of trillions of miles, because that's the average distance between different star systems. You know, light years, a few trillion miles. Maybe you're actually doing this over hundreds of trillions of miles. So that's an accuracy of one part in a quadrillion. It's the same, act- to, to put it, put it in context, if you knew the diameter of the Earth, that same accuracy, you would know it with a precision, which is basically about the size of an atom. (laughs) Let's leave that aside. Okay, so you can do that. You can transwarp yourself across light years of distances effectively instantaneously, because it doesn't show any time elapsing between doing that. Well, you can do that. Why do you need starships? If you can transport yourself anywhere in Federation, that accurately what in the world do you need these big starships for? Why are you, car- Why are you carrying people around on these starships? What do you need the Enterprise for again? <laughs> okay, I um, hear you. All right? And then but the whole big thing about this is that he's transformed himself to to the, the Klingon planet because the, he's basically out of reach of the Federation at that point. The Federation is really worried about going to war with Klingon Empire, and so they, enter- they send the Enterprise on a secret mission to extract him without the Klingons knowing about it all this, you know, and, and I'm, thinking, I'm looking there, oh my God, if you can put a person on the main planet of the Klingon Empire using technology, you can put a bomb there, you got <laughs> antimatter, you got antimatter technology, you can bomb them back into the Stone Age from a distance of light years away. Why are you worried about them? Okay, okay you know, right. and sorry. <laughs> all I, right, I, so let
0: le, le, let me let me s- s- oh, go. Go ahead,
1: go ahead. I I know I'm getting very vehement about this, but it just bugged me watching this that they're thinking that you know that, that this whole plot is premised on them having to go out there and extract them without anyone else knowing about it. But the Klingons are clearly not a threat at this point. If they can do that,
0: they can do anything they want
1: to the Klingons without any fear of retaliation. Right. Okay. Um, so
0: right. So, so sorry. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's kind of like sort of the dark side of <laughs> not paying enough attention to. Right. Yeah.
1: This to, is, to, to... is why you. I think this is actually why you have to pay attention to these things when you write it, because otherwise.
0: Right. Okay. Um. Oh, but sorry, but, let, me... but, but let, let me ask you. Right. So 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 far. Right. We we you, you've you've given a bunch of um, examples of things that are not plausible. So yeah. So so what. So from, from Star Trek, from other science fiction, from fantasy, I know this is also a mm-hmm. book on fantasy, and my personal bias is that I, I'm not that interested mm-hmm. in fantasy, but I'm sure plenty of listeners are. So from any of these areas, what, what are some cool science fiction things that could actually someday become science fact?
1: Okay. Um, I, think that, I think that something we are probably going to see within our lifetime is the discovery of alien life. Um, life hmm. on other planets. I, I, I really hope it and of all of the far out science fiction things, this seems to be to be the most plausible one right now. Um, I, I, this, this is actually this is actually a wonderful time to be alive as far as that goes because we are in the golden age of exoplanet discovery. We, we have discovered something like when I was born, we had no idea that there were any, you know, we thought there might be planets circling stars out, not, with the warrant to sign out, you know, exoplanets, stars circling other, star, planets circling other stars. We thought there might be, but we didn't have a good enough technology to, to detect them. Nowadays, the planets in the solar system, the planets circling our sun, are a tiny minority of all the planets that we have discovered. We, I think we know something like a thousand other planets circling other stars. And the technology that we have gets better by leaps and bounds. One of the biggest problems, actually, in writing the book, when I wrote the sections about the detection of alien life, was that things kept on changing. I think that the last edit I made on that chapter was like weeks before the book actually had to be put in, had to be sent in, simply because um, everything changed so rapidly. We had this, we, you know, the Kepler telescope was out there detecting. It's, it detected something like twelve hundred planet candidates out there. And of them, a fair you know, there's a, um, at least I think I, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but there are a fair number of them, I think at least ten or twelve that are discovered, which are within the habitable zones and are of a right size that could poten- potentially be you know uh, potentially have Earth like life on them. And our detection methods get better. We've actually detected atmospheres on these other planets, and I think soon technology is going to be good enough that we're actually going to be able to detect the signs of life on these planets, you know, basically from atmospheric constituents. Now, it may not be intelligent life. We may only be discovering alien bacteria or alien plant life, but still, that's I mean that's one of the biggest you know if we can detect life that's not on the earth, I think mean, that's going to be one of the biggest scientific discoveries ever made right, um, I mean, most
0: yeah ones. I don't think the the SETI project has has mm. found any no sorry go ahead yeah yeah so right so so yeah, so that's a that, that, that's a caveat, sure, and you know I have always thought for years and years and years that it would be pretty arrogant of the human race to mm-hmm. assume. That we are the only intelligent life out there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just you know, so it's one of my personal beliefs that, right? I mean, the the universe is so vast, yeah, and yeah. It's like it's like how how could we come to believe that we are the only intelligent mm-hmm. forms of life out there? Oh, oh,
1: absolutely. I I I absolutely agree with that. Um, the tricky part about intelligent life and detecting intelligent life and talking with them, um, is the issue of the lifetime. Um, this is, I, I was very careful what I said about detecting life because um, the way we have, the techniques we have now to detect to detect alien life don't really require them to be talking with us. If you, if you look at, it's kind of an interesting historical thing. If you look at, the, at SETI, and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the big SETI decades were the 1960s through the 1980s when radio telescopes were the, you know, were really at the forefront of astronomy. And there was a, there was a um, people, you know, uh, Morrison back in the 1960s did this calculation that said, you know, essentially that with radio, you can communicate over interstellar distances. And so we, people had these big radio telescopes and we were seeing these wonderful things in the cosmos. Pulsars and um, active galactic nuclei and quasars and things like that, and you know people realized oh we could use these to detect intelligent life as well, and so they started looking for them, and I think I think there's a decent shot that we will actually detect intelligent life via this technique, but the problem comes in that we that in order to do that we actually have to have someone who's trying to signal us as well.
0: That's right. Whereas yeah. They they what need to be gonna, they want they they need to want to be found. They need to want to be found.
1: Um, and one of the tricky the other tricky part um, is that the the issue with intelligent with intelligent life in the universe is that you can define what intelligence constitutes at least detectable intelligence constitutes very easily. They have to have radio. Now, this is a tricky issue because if you look at human beings, we've had radio uh, technology for about 100 years now. And so Mm -hmm. what that means is that humanity is detectable via its radio, you know, via our radio missions um, for about 100 years, meaning that civilizations, you know, its radio is travel at the speed of light. Any advanced civilization within 100 light years could tell, in fact, that the Earth had radio, you know, was an advanced intelligent civilization by this type, by this criterion, whereas anything outside that shell couldn't. And so, if we got a broadcast back today, we could be, you know, we we'd know that they were actually within within a hundred light years of us. Um. So you have this issue, and I, I uh, you're, I, I, think you're, you're familiar with the Drake Equation for estimating the number of the alien intelligences. No, I'm not. Okay, the Drake equation is an equation, sometimes called the Green Bank equation, that a guy named Frank Drake invented back in the 1960s in which he tried to use it to estimate the number of advanced alien civilizations that are out there for us to contact. Um, He expressed it in terms of basically a series of products of numbers. um, The rate at which he, oh, I'd have to, I, people do it different ways. Carl Sagan had a, the most famous version, I think, was on the TV show Cosmos when Carl Sagan used this to estimate it. Um, and so you, you basically, and you multiply all these numbers together. Uh, the last, You multiply by something like um, the rate at which stars are formed times the number of planets on average which each star has multiplied by the fraction of those planets which are neither too far away from the sun nor too close to the, nor clo- too close to its star to have life times the fraction of those planets that actually develop life times the fraction of those planets that develop intelligent life ultimately times the light the average lifetime of an advanced technological civilization the problem with that equation is that the only number we actually know For certain, the only number that was known for certain back in 1962, when Drake formulated it originally, was the rate at which stars form, which is about 10 per year in in our galaxy. And every other single number was unknown. We now actually have a better estimate on the number on the average number of planets circling a star. And in fact, we may even now have a better estimate have a have a decent estimate on the fraction of those planets that are neither too far away from the star nor too close to the star. Because of all these exoplanet discoveries, but we still don't know what fraction of those planets are actually going to develop life, what fraction are going to develop intelligent life, and what the average length of an the the you know the, the lifetime of an of an advanced technological civilization is going to be. So, I agree with you. I think it would be very arrogant to think that we're going to be the only intelligent race out there. The tricky part all comes back to that. That value L, the lifetime of the average civilization, because if you think about it, this is, um, think about a, uh, think about standing out in a dark meadow, a meadow which is completely dark, and you see in the meadow fireflies. You're in the middle in the middle of meadow in the middle of summer, and you see fireflies flickering on and off, and occasionally you see two fireflies flick on and off at the same time, or one firefly flick on. And, the, and another one flick on while the first one's on, and then off again. This is kind of analogous to the situation that we're in. Um, the number of times you see two or more fireflies flick on and off at the same time depends on two things. Number one, the rate at which the fire the rate at which uh, the fire at which the fireflies are flickering on and off, right? How many times per second you see them, and number two the length of time that they stay on, the longer they're going to stay on, the more the chance is that two are going to be on simultaneously. Do you see what I'm saying there? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's kind of an Alex's situation we're in. The length of time is kind of the length of time that, that our advanced technological civilization is going to last. The rate is basically how many of these advanced technological civilizations kind of appear kind of, you know, and we don't know what you know, we don't know really either one of those. We have an example of one advanced technological civilization, if you call world culture, this technological civilization. On Earth, it's been around for a hundred years, but that's a t- so far, that's a tiny little fraction of the time that, that, that life has been on this planet. So, you know, conditions in the galaxy have been such that life on any given planet inside of our galaxy probably could have evolved any time within the last billion years. So if civilizations last for a hundred years, or five hundred years, or a thousand years, and you kind of peter out again and die off, then the odds of actually our contacting one are pretty small, because you know, you've got billions of years. You know, if if, if a civilization, you know, if the Alpha Centaurians, right, developed a highly advanced technological civilization a billion years ago, but it only lasted for ten thousand years, we're never going to see them. Right We're never going to detect that they were there because they you know they're they're long gone and dead. Or if they developed a billion years from now or even a million years from now, the odds are pretty good. We're not going to contact them either because you know, this is as good as a mile. And you've got all of you've got all of this galactic time. you've got all of you've got all of time in which to develop these civilizations, but they may you know, but if they only if they only last for a short period of time, then the odds are pretty good we'll never actually talk to
0: them, which I find very depressing, by the way. <laughs> okay. All right. It's not, so it's
1: not, it's not a fun thing to think
0: about. But okay, all right. So right. So, so so in in a nutshell, you you believe that, that there are alien civilizations and and that in our lifetimes in our lifetime we may we may actually get to meet them.
1: Maybe. I think the odds are against us. I, I will say that I think the odds are I think the odds are good for us detecting life on other worlds. I think the odds are not so great for detect- detecting an advanced alien civilization in another world. Okay, um, just because of the issues of just because of the issues of cosmological time. And okay. Not yeah. Go, sorry, go ahead.
0: All right, so I, so I'm curious if, if you have another example or two of implausible, or, or sorry, of, of, of science fiction that is plausible and maybe science fact
1: um sure it's an, i'll give you an example that didn't make it into the book although um it may be make may, might I, I it may make it in the sequel if I, have, if I if i write the sequel but um i think i i think very strongly that we're gonna see artificial intelligence probably sometime within our lifetime um the reasoning behind that is that I can't see any reason why we can't <laughs> develop it um I you know this is this is kind of a silly thing maybe to say about it, but um, we know more and more and more about how the brain works every year, and we, I think we know more and more and more about how how intelligence works, and we have this one example of of you know intelligence evolved in, evolved you know, through evolution, which kind of you know fits inside of our skulls, but every year computer technology gets better and better and better, and you know um, and I think I, I think it's probably only a matter of time before we actually start dealing with Um, intelligent computers, intelligent, you know, artificially intelligent devices for the simple reason that I can't see any laws of physics that would prohibit it. Um, As far as I can tell, our brain works by, you know, very well understood physical principles. And I think we're getting to the point where we actually understand what, we're not maybe there yet, but we're getting to the point where I think we're going to understand what intelligence means. Well enough to be able to create another system that is, in fact, intelligent. I am you know, saying that kind of kind of a stilted way of saying it, but I, I think I get point across.
0: Right. So, so data in Star Trek or the the the, right. the holographic doctor. You're right. Exactly. Uh, might might actually be you know might you know might yeah. might my, my, my become real i mean i remember right in in the 70s and in the 80s when mm-hmm. when i was getting interested in computers there was a, mm-hmm. a lot of hoopla around oh, yeah. artificial intelligence and as far as i can tell it didn't go very far
1: yeah i know <laughs> this is this is one thing that makes me that makes me doubt it a little bit
0: <laughs> um, you had yeah you had uh,
1: one of the things that got really you ever read a book called Gödel escherbach yep
0: yep uh, yeah, i have i have the book on my shelf it's a great book yeah, I love the book as well. And that's actually the book that got me
1: one of the books that got me really interested in mathematics when I was uh I don't know 13, 14, something like that. But um yeah, I and you know, this is one of these things where Yeah, there was a lot of hoopla back then and one of the things that I always that always bothered me about AI research back in the 80s was that the people who were doing it were talking a lot about building computer systems to simulate the brain without paying a whole lot of attention to how the brain really worked? Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, you had you had a lot of these books. Um, I, I love Gödel, Lesher Bach, by the way, and I, I actually I'm very I like Douglas Hofstadter's other writings as well, um, but when you look at when you look at the work that, 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 you know, that that these people who were were doing back then um, it seemed to be that they were not, that they were really ignoring some very interesting findings from, you know, neurology and neuroscience and, and, um, you know, and brain science about how brains really worked in order to make these sort of constructs on how they thought brains worked, And um, that's, I, I think that that was ignoring a large part. I think people are coming back to it right now. Again, I, I don't know this for sure. You know, it may be that we're, we've just completely lost interest in trying to create artificial intelligence, and so it'll never happen simply because we don't really want to do it. Um, and and I agree with you also that we've made very little progress on it. It's just that I guess my feeling is there's no reason we can't do it. There's, there doesn't seem to be a there doesn't seem to be a particularly good reason why why it can't happen.
0: Well, you you know, my hunch is that where it is happening is in business applications like, Mm -hmm. you know, data mining and understanding the stock market and where where there's a lot of money to be made. I -hmm. think people have some very sophisticated, you know, mathematical modeling that, you know, one could argue, you know, to, to, to be artificial intelligence.
1: Perhaps although you have that very elusive issue of, of self-awareness and what that actually means and i don't know what that means unfortunately so it's, it's yeah um but mm-hmm. i think uh another thing that i'd like to see although i'm kind of negative about it in the book at least um you know i i, um, I i'm i think that there's a bare possibility that we might see something like the space elevator um, happening—that mm-hmm. would be actually very a very far-out thing. Um, I discussed it in the book. I'm I'm actually a little dismissive of it in the book, but in fact, it'd be a pretty cool thing if it actually ever happened. Um, I think it is on the borderline of what could and could not be feasible. And this idea of building an elevator out into space—you know, starting right. with a geosynchronous satellite, kind of you know winding one end of it down and the other end of it back up to space. Um, I would love to see it because it seems like it's the, one of the very few feasible means we have of putting stuff into space relatively cheaply. Um, you know, I'd love to see space tourism take off to a point where anyone could afford it. Right. Again, it's one of these things where I'm kind of... I, I have no idea. It's one of those things which seems to be right on the borderline of being possible, but I don't know which side of the borderline it comes up on. There's nothing... There's nothing in the laws of physics. You know we, we, you know, we put stuff into space all the time, right? So we can obviously do that. But making it economical that, so that anyone could actually do it, I have no idea. It's one of these things which seems marginally possible if people were willing to invest a lot of money into it with, you know, with the idea that, that it, you know, it could possibly fail and, and not work out. But I, I have no idea which side of the borderline it belongs on.
0: Hmm. okay that'd be a cool thing though. that'd be i that, that, yeah, that'd be yes cool. so okay. so let me completely switch gears on you sure. because we we are we you know we we are um getting not not too far from um from having been on this um call for for about an hour. I no. want to get um your sense on how teachers and students could use this book to mm-hmm you know, increase their 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 motivation into learning more math and more physics. I mean my you know my my first impression and I think I am I I think I you know I've said this bef- before, right, in in this interview, I'm a little bit squeamish about <laughs> physics because I because I don't feel like I have a good mm-hmm. grounding in it. So when you say and I think at some point in the book, maybe in the introduction, mm-hmm. you say, well this, you know, this book is um suitable for people, you know for students who have you know basic high school algebra or mm-hmm. something to that effect and and sure enough, looking at the equations flipping through the book right there there are not hairy, complicated mm-hmm. equations beyond algebra, but I think as you said earlier in the interview, there is some conceptual mm-hmm. understanding. It's like yes, I I recognize this formula. It's a parabola. So what? Mm-hmm. It's you know that, that that doesn't help me to understand conceptually why you know if somebody you know I guess it's the classic cannonball thing, right? You shoot a mm-hmm. cannonball and it has a parabolic path. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's you know it's related to a formula you know y equals ax squared plus b. Mm-hmm. You know or um you know it could be plus bx plus c whatever so it's a parabola but uh, so so what do you think this is kind of a big hairball of a question what <laughs> you know so we because because my big interest in mm. in what you're doing and in your book is i want to see your book in the hands of students and teachers who are saying you know particular teachers who are saying you know boy these kids are so into fantasy and they're so mm. into science fiction can i use that as a catalyst, you know, like you had the experience and you became a mm-hmm. physics professor, can teachers what can teachers do to get this out to their kids?
1: Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's an excellent question, and obviously it's something I will actually like to happen with the book. Um, I actually I used a, a a very early version, a very early draft of the book to teach an upper-level physics class um, on the science and science fiction. Um, It was, um, I think it was successful. Um, We had a lot of, I I basically, you know, to some extent, it's bait and switch, (laughs) if if you want, you know, if if you you get the idea, it's how it happened. I I wrote the book because that's basically how it happened with me. I started reading science fiction. The science fiction got me turned on to science. That's why I became a scientist. And so if it worked for me, I was hoping that, it'll, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that it'll actually work for other people. And, um, one, you know, people talk about the applications of physics to the real world. And that's great. There are a lot of books written about real world physics. But if you start talking with people who are interested, you know, if, if you, talk, what are, when you have talks with people, okay, and you start talking with people about, um, you know, there, there are a lot of topics that we talk about real-world physics about, right? Like, um, you know, I don't know, physics of, uh, physics of oil well drilling, take, you know, something like that, right? And you talk to somebody about mm-hmm. drilling oil wells, they're not going to get that excited about it. At least my in my experience, you're not going to get you know horribly excited about you know, physics oil wells. But if you t- if you look at for example, um, there a, there, are you feeling, are you a fan of the TV show Big Bang Theory?
0: Yeah, I've, yeah, that's that's a fun show. Yep. Yeah, there was like one of the
1: first very first episodes, maybe the first one. I don't remember where you know Sheldon and the others are arguing about the first Superman movie, or second Superman movie. Sorry where Superman catches Lois Lane in his arms, and they're arguing about whether Lois Lane would be killed by his catching her in his, you know, in his, in his super-strength, you know, super-impervious arms because of that fall. And they're arguing... <coughs> <sighs> sorry. And they're arguing like crazy over whether or not she would survive. And, you know, they're really, really... You know, they're really into the argument. And this is a completely made-up situation. So people can get, you know, people get very, you know, when you talk about things like the environment or the um, you know, environment or economic policies or, you know, current events or things like that, a lot of people, I think, either will not get very excited about them or get a little bit afraid to be very excited about them because these topics are a little bit, in some sense, dangerous to deal with, if you think about it that way. Um, they, they, they hit too close to home. Whereas, if you look at these topics like science fiction and fantasy, arguing about whether the transporter will work, arguing about whether Lois Lane will survive a fall into, into, into Superman's arms, arguing about whether anti-gravity is possible, about you know about interstellar travel, things like that, I think people feel much freer to argue about them and to think about them because these are safe topics but they're also interesting ones. They're things you can have opinions about, they're things that actually aren't completely settled either. You know, they're things that you can that you can basically argue back one side or the other about and are fascinating because of that. And you so, can get very excited about them because you, I think you you can permit yourself to get very excited about them.
0: Right. So so I, I think what I'm hearing is you you're saying basically you're writing the book that you wish you had had mm-hmm. when when you were first starting to get inspired. Right. So do you, but, but I also heard you say that you taught this as an, to an upper level class. Right. The, so, that was a
1: deliberate choice. I, I will say that. Um, one thing that I hadn't developed yet was, was the, I wanted the students to understand Newton's laws of motion. That, that was actually before I actually went into it. Um, if I did it again, I would probably teach it as an introductory first year seminar. Um, but I would probably spend the first couple of weeks talking about Newton's laws of motion. There's one always has to engage in these choices, I guess, um, because the book wasn't completely developed, and because I didn't. Um, it wasn't fully plotted out at that point. It, it, what I taught was essentially what made it into section two of the book about about space travel, and that section is the most mathematically intense one.
0: Right, but but so what, what I'm still trying to get at is right so so you're thinking that that you would teach this to undergraduates undergraduates yeah okay absolutely. so do you think that well obviously you, you're, you're a college professor and so that's that's your audience do you think that teachers can teach this in high school? I believe so um, I don't think um, I think you'd have to teach it to
1: I think that, yes, I, I, believe you can. I believe you can use this for high school teaching. Um, I think that one of the oh. ways to do it, I tried to write it in such a way. I, I, I believe that the mathematical level of most of the equations in the book are at a point where uh, most high school students can understand them. That being said, it's been a long time since I've been, I've been in high school. So you know I, I may have misjudged that. Um,
0: right. I mean, I, I one, wonder... The, and I am, yes. and I'm not the best person to to judge because of my my skittishness with physics. But I, I mean, I would love to, you know, you know, maybe hear some some high school physics teachers mm-hmm. or high school physics or you know, students who are, um, you know, studying physics in high school. And I'm not even sure how much physics is taught in high school anymore. I certainly had some mm-hmm. when, but I went to a very good high school. Yeah. Um. But I would like to know. You know, it it may be. That your book is a really good second book, mm-hmm. but that there needs to be a first book that creates the foundation. Quite possibly, um, I
1: you you could be yeah you could be right about
0: that. Um,
1: the tricky part about all of this is the issue of space. It's a you know it's a three hundred page book. Um, if you spend a third of the book. Just laying down the basic physics, then you only, you know, then you're, then you have to basically decide, well, I got to take these topics out and it might be a good way of doing it. I don't know. Um, the book was, the book was meant to be a, a pop. You're, 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 talking directly to, you're talking directly to my, to my own, you know, basic insecurities about the book here. So, you know, you're, you're, you're obviously hitting home here. Um, the, um, what you're saying is, is absolutely right. And in fact, part of the process that I went through when writing the book was to say, okay, well, do I go really into the more basic physics here and talk about that and really develop that first, or do I just go into the science fiction and bring up the physics that's needed as I go along? And I do the latter in the hopes that people can follow along with it as, as they're reading the books. And, you know, again, the idea hopefully was that there's enough um, text that, you know, that you can, um, you know, that, that the people can actually kind of get the idea of what I'm saying, even if they don't want to go through the mathematics behind
0: it. Right. I mean, what, I mean, all I'm saying is that, and 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 we would certainly need more data, is, mm-hmm. I, I, I think it is it, it is a wonderful book. I'm mm-hmm. delighted to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'm not convinced that the audience is, is you know, is an audience of, of of high schoolers. And so when you say that, well, you need a you know, basic high school algebra. I think there's more to it. And, mm-hmm. and, and I have, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is, oh, please, go ahead. one is, I think, I think it would be wonderful if you were to write a prequel <laughs> to write in, yes, in, in the spirit of movies, uh-huh. you know, yes. Could you make a prequel to this book? That would be another 300 page book that would um create, you know, connect the dots and create the, the bridge and the foundation um, because it may be that, you know, college students who are studying math or physics or, you know, or some other branch of science, they may be motivated enough to make all of the connections and they may have the background. And with a prequel, mm-hmm. maybe, the, maybe the younger um, kids can, can get inspired earlier. And the second thought I had mm-hmm. is, I think it would be wonderful if you were to create a blog where every time you wrote an article, you, it, the, the article was providing some of the background, um, helping the, the kids um, who don't have the background to get to the point where they can actually understand a piece of the book. And then um, after a year or two, you could take all the blog articles and that could become your prequel.
1: It, it's odd you should say that because in fact, I've had actually a very, I had actually a very similar idea. Um in the last couple of weeks about that, because um, i I think that's actually a very good idea. Um, I, I had actually I, I had thought about this issue about about the you know about the mathematical level of the book, and one of the things I was thinking about uh, kind of you know, idly going over was a book something like um, it, it I don't remember exactly the title, but it but it was something similar to what you were saying, you know basically like you know, uh, basics of science fiction for the high school student or basics of science fiction for the undergrad, you know, for the, whatever, you know, for the, um, and, um, we, uh, the idea being, again, a much more, um, you know, something like the scientific ideas of science fiction for the high school student or something of that order, you know, that's, that's a clunky title, but then you get the right. idea.
0: But that's the idea. Yes. Yeah. Would, would, you know,
1: again, and again, taking out most, a lot of the algebra there. Um, the it's a good. I think it's a very good idea. Um, and the idea of actually putting a blog together and then taking the articles from the blog and and linking them together is not one that I had thought about. But you know, I may actually even use that. Actually, if you you know,
0: a lot of people write books this way, and and I think a lot of people do it intentionally. They they say I want to write a book in a year. Um, and and a great way to test out the book is to write some articles watch, and right. see what kind of feedback right.
1: I get. Right. It's a good idea, and actually, it's one. It's one that I hadn't considered because, you know, again, I am I'm of this older, well, not older, older generation, but it's it's one of the, I I you know I, I was born before the web existed, so it's 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 not something I naturally think of when I'm thinking about writing these articles. But I, I think it is a very good one, um, and it actually, and it follows. It actually does pretty well match lines along along which I've been thinking. So yeah. You don't mind? I'm actually going to I'm going to take that up. In fact.
0: Oh no 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 no! In fact, I, I I hope you do. I mean, my whole interest in this series is to you know catalyze inspiration from people like you who are writing inspiring books, that I think really can be you know a wonderful catalyst. And and you know my 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 concern is that that the people not mistake that the the machinery of the mathematics mm-hmm. is pretty simple, right? Dealing mm-hmm. with quadratic right. equations is not very difficult, but, but the motivation and the, the understanding and the foundation, right. I think that's a much more delicate thing.
1: Yeah, I, I, no, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that, on that point. It's, you know, it's one of these things also where I think that this, you know, this is my first book and I, I leaf through it and I think, well, you know, I could have done that better, or I like this, or you know, what was I thinking here? Things like that. So, um, but I, I think you're absolutely right. I think I, your, your your way of putting, it, I think, is is very apt. It's a very delicate understanding that one has to have in terms of physics. And also, you mentioned about this issue about. I think that there actually is a certain delicacy of mind, or kind of a um, a weird sort of balancing act. Uh, maybe I'm not making it exactly clear about your conceptual understanding versus the use of mathematics to try to understand physical phenomena and to try to understand right. what's going I mean, on
0: here. It's, it's very clear from my experience in in mathematics that there is a very big difference between having a conceptual understanding and being able to do well on tests that, that require you to just know formulas and manipulate formulas. Right. There, you know, I mean, there, there is some intersection. The, the people – who have a conceptual mm-hmm. understanding are, are going to be able to do the abstract thinking that it takes to manipulate the formulas mm-hmm. but but not necessarily the other way around right? oh, there are certainly kids who are great at you know applying rules but they, they, don't, they don't understand
1: right absolutely I, I agree with that hundred percent and in fact that's what we see in fact and we've actually been um, we've actually uh, if I can step out of talking about science fiction for a moment. We actually measure this at, at, at the college that I work at, um, at, at St. Mary's College in the physics department. Um, we actually have a conceptual physics exam that we give it to students, not as part of the regular class, but um, basically um, at the beginning and the end of their first semester classes to figure out how much of the concepts they've learned. Very and good. Always very instructive to see what...
0: No, it's great. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah, And we've taken like eight years of data worth of this stuff, and um, we have hundreds of students worth of data. It's very interesting to see what actually gets them to learn the concepts and also what you're saying is correct. The students who are good on the concepts are also good on the math, but it doesn't go the other way around. The students who are good at the math aren't necessarily the ones who are actually getting conceptual stuff well, learning conceptual stuff well. What's also really interesting, this is completely off topic. But what's very interesting about that um, is that the one thing that makes a difference about whether students actually learn the material or not is how you teach the class. Not who you are as a teacher. It's not how inspiring you are as a lecturer. It really just comes down to mechanics. If you have students work in groups, if you have them actually working together together on solving problems and discussing the problems very actively. And if you force them, because this is not something students will want to do on their own, but if you force them to speak up in class and to talk with the fact the professor back and forth, and if you continually quiz them on what they're learning and learn how much they're learning somehow actively, using clicker systems or some other means of actually getting the information, how much they're actually learning to you instantaneously, they learn
0: about twice as much.
1: As if you don't do, as if you just lectured to them by, by yourself, that's well, a really instructive thing.
0: Well, I'll go further than that, and, and as I'm talking, I am Googling. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if, I, if I'll find it fast enough here, but I did a podcast mm-hmm. interview with Dave Richeson, mm-hmm. and he is um, also a professor, and I think. Um, topology is is uh, mm-hmm. is at least one of the topics that he teaches. And one of the things and and he didn't invent this way of of teaching mm-hmm. but I mean I would have to go back and, and listen to the, the the podcast again but he talks about having and there and there's a name for this mode of, mm-hmm. of intellectual inquiry but the upshot is that by the end of the semester the mm-hmm. students in the class had written a textbook on the subject.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I know exactly what you're talking about. I can't remember the name of it either. It, 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 yeah, it's one particular strategy for doing this, but yes.
0: Right. So it, Yeah, so if you look up, if, if, if you or anybody else Googles at Wild About Math or, you know, does, or does the search mm-hmm. box for Dave Richeson, R-I-C-H-E-S-O-N, it's the Inspired by Math number mm-hmm. 20, um, and there's even a link. Um, to an article of his, how I teach topology: an inquiry-based learning approach.
1: Yes, yes inquiry-based is is the, is the kind of the blanket name for a lot of these techniques.
0: Right. So, but but I mean, but you, you know, but you're exploring. And I think it's wonderful that you and and your school are exploring that approach to how do you get beyond right the mode of learning where mm-hmm. the teacher, the professor professes and the students. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somehow absorb it. I mean, this is this is my personal you know, little soapbox here, but this is my pet peeve with um, you know Sal Khan and um, and his whole you know project to revolutionize how math is taught. I think he is doing right. a remarkably wonderful thing, but he's not changing the paradigm right. of how math is taught. I mean, he's Absolutely. he's he's a good instructor. He's very personable people like him people relate to him it's a it's a it's a low stress way of learning mathematics because you could do it at your own pace you can rewind it you're mm-hmm. not in a rush um, to learn the material so there's a lot of positives to his mm-hmm. approach but it but it's the approach that that we've been using for you know for you know for a right. hundred years or hundreds of years right and and people talk about the applications of
1: and I agree with you I actually tried using the Khan Academy um, uh, tests in my in most recent incarnation my introductory physics course and I did not actually see them as a huge benefit when, after using them because they did not fit in very well with the way I was teaching the class. You know, again, I, I use clickers if you're familiar with with electronic clicker technology. You know, you basically pose a question to class. They have these clickers; they can click back and answer the question. Sure. Mm-hmm. But first, they actually do a lot of intensive group work discussing the question, making sure it comes out. You know, making sure that they're comfortable with the answer they're going to give back. And it just didn't fit in with that paradigm very well. I mean, a lot of, you know, people talk about the uses of, of, of technology in the classroom. I think one of the worst things we've seen in recent times is this idea of electronic, you know, these massively huge electronic classrooms where teachers, you know, broadcasting out classes to, you know, thousands or hundreds of, you know, hundreds or thousands of students. And again, that's just exporting our model to the point where it's almost impossible to get any interactive feedback from anyone. Just because, right. You know, right. I think you're. I think you you're, you're
0: talking about the MOOCs. The MOOCs. Yeah. MOOCs. MOOC. I think it's mul- multi, massive yeah. online open course. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know. Um. Okay. Although I think that those are evolving to the, mm-hmm. the point where where there where there can be interaction on the internet, and students can get together virtually and work through um, problems and such. But, you know, I'm particularly interested in how, um, and we really have gone on a, on a tangent, but I, yeah, think oh God, a, yeah. I think it's an important <laughs> tangent. I think it's an, an yeah. important tangent because I have always been good at math. Ever since I was young, I, you know, it was like, like a fish in water. It always made sense to me. I loved it. Um, you know, love the symbol manipulation, love the abstract thinking, everything there is um, about math. You know, majored in math at, at university and 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 all of that. Um, yet, I could never click with physics. So, so in a way, you know, um, I may be your your harshest critic. Somebody who <laughs> naturally loves physics may have done this interview and 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 not touched oh, on 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 any of the points that. That, that 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 I'm making. So I so I hope people take that with a grain of salt. That I'm not right. trying to be negative. I I love your book. I love what you're doing.
1: If you're my harshest critic, then I have really nothing to worry about, honestly.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: but uh, no, you, I mean you, you've given me some wonderful questions to think about. But I, I think that in in you know I think um, I like the fact that you're approaching the book with with a, a very significant amount of skepticism or at least a, 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 an idea to actually really question the book and question it thoroughly about what it's what you know what, what its intents are, what it, what the intended audience is and how, how well it functions and what it's doing.
0: Right, I, I right. I really
1: want people to be doing that. I, I you know I want people to be reading the book. I want people to be disagreeing with parts of the book. or agreeing with parts, but I want people to send me feedback about the book or write reviews on Amazon or whatever it is. You know, whether they like it or don't like it. You know I, that this is what we teach. This is what we. This is what we, as scientists, want people to be doing: to be skeptical about the material they're being presented with, and to really look at the material in depth and and be, and, and challenge it, and be challenged by it. Um, as far as as far as what you say about physics goes, um, you know, I don't think a lot of physicists. I think will take the attitude that there are some people who can't learn physics or can't be taught physics or whatever you call it. I think that's a crummy attitude.
0: I think yeah, I, yeah attitude. I, I think that's a cop-out.
1: Exactly. Um, I think that anyone can learn physics. I think that anyone can learn mathematics, honestly. Um, the point, though, is that teachers, I think, have to get it through their heads that it's not them teaching it's the student that's learning. And that's really the important part of it. Um, Once you know, lectures don't do a lot. I like, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, it's, it's one of these things which is, is it's a little difficult for, for a professor to really get after a while. But the lectures, you know, when you when you lecture to a classroom, it's something like ten to twenty percent. Something like ten to twenty percent of the material that you're lecturing about is actually being understood, and right. that's mm-hmm. sure. I and a lot. I, you know, it, it, and initially, when I, you know, when I when I first really grasped that, it took us doing. You know, I I talked about these conceptual exams. And I used to lecture. I thought I was good at lecturing, and we started giving these conceptual exams. And I started looking at my scores on them. I started thinking. You know, this is just depressing. But then, you know, I started talking with other people about what they what they were doing in their classrooms, and I realized, well, you know, what they're doing isn't that hard. They're just shifting things, you know, so that we do these other things. Do the students do group work? They they discuss the stuff. They discuss the concepts. They give you feedback. And I realized that that was actually a matter for hope in the classroom because. You know it it's you know in some sense, as a teacher, right people people have this idea of the teacher as delivering these brilliant lectures and explaining everything so well, but that's a view of the teacher as who the teacher is, the teacher having this ineffable ability to teach the subject, Whereas effective teaching is not who the teacher is, it's what the teacher does
0: well it, if if yeah, I make it on my soapbox, yeah.
1: yeah, go ahead for,
0: um for a moment i I think in our culture, certainly in mm-hmm. the Western American culture that I grew up with, we have this notion that we like to deify professions. Mm-hmm. so we make Absolutely. we make our doctors gods, and our lawyers, <laughs> gods, and our teachers, and mm-hmm. you know, we turn them into gods and 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 so we make everybody pr- perfect and unfortunately. In doing that, we abdicate our own responsibility mm-hmm. for learning um, to to these teachers. But these teachers aren't gods. They, you know, some are better than others, and they have different mm-hmm. skills in in different areas. And I really do believe that the future of education is people getting together, you know, in community. And learning this stuff and learning mm-hmm. it in different ways that works for different people, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we all hear that some people are audio and some right. people mm-hmm. are are visual and kinesthetic, and and we're learning more and more about how the brain works. So there's a whole lot more to the, to learning than you know a teacher doing a, essentially a broadcast. So right. no, absolutely. Um, I no arguments here, absolutely not. Yeah. So so let me ask you just just two more. Questions, um, because uh, we do need to wind down here. But, sure. but so, so first of the last questions is: is there is there a next book or other big project? Hey, hopefully a blog. Ha
1: Yeah. Well, you, you've inspired <laughs> me. I, I do want to start a blog now. Um, I, I, I think I think your idea is just a one. Um, I do have another proposal into Princeton University Press. Um yes. It's called Why Da Vinci's Machines Don't Work. <laughs> Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, so that, that was a fun one. This one actually originated from a class I was teaching um, to introductory students. Um, I, I've, I've been teaching, I've, I've taught now, I think, for three years in a row, um, a course call, called, not not last year, but a couple of years before that, a course called Galileo and the Birth of Modern Science. Galileo is a huge hero of mine. Um, I think that he was one of the most amazing scientists one of the most amazing personas in all of history. But in order to teach this class, um, you have to kind of delve more deeply because you have to kind of understand, in order to understand Galileo, you have to kind of understand the historical context of the Renaissance as it was in Italy. And so this led me back to looking at Galileo's forebears. And so I started looking at da Vinci and looking at all these amazing things he did. And and do not get me wrong, by the way, I think da Vinci was also an amazing person. Just, I, I, you know, I, I have an enormous amount of respect for him, but if you look at his work, his work consists of a lot of projects that were started and never finished, or never started and just exist only in his notebooks, as he sort of wild speculations. He's got these, you know, the most obvious example is the flying machines, but there are other things as well, like war machines, war, um These he, he had this huge statue that he was trying to build that never got finished. All these sorts of things that never got finished, and I think one of the reasons for that is that Galileo knew something that Da Vinci didn't. You know, you, you know n- n- nothing against Da Vinci here. Da Vinci, you know, Galileo lived you know 150, 200 years after Da Vinci did. But Galileo understood the issue of scaling laws. You know, Galileo. I don't know how familiar you are with Galileo's work. Um, A little. Last His last book is called um, Dialogue Concerning Two New Sciences. And in that book, one of the two new sciences that he talks about is what we would call physics today. He talks about the basic underpinnings of mechanics. But the other new science is the science of scaling laws how things scale as you, you know, how how different properties of an object scale as you scale the dimension of an object. You know, for example, if you double the size of an object, its surface area goes up by a factor of four, and volume, where its weight, goes up by a factor of eight. So simple scaling relationships, right? You know, if, if, you know um, linear size goes by a factor of two, area goes by the square of the linear size of two squared four, volume and weight go up by a factor of two cubed, eight. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so if you look at a lot of da Vinci's inventions, a lot of them, I think, fail because of a failure to appreciate this issue you know, a lot of his ideas were either, you know, things that were, would, you know, things that birds can do, you know, fly by flapping their wings or whatever, because their power to rate weight ratio is much higher than a human's metabolic power to weight ratio is. And there are good reasons in terms of physics and metabolism why that's so, but da Vinci wouldn't have understood that because, you know, again, he was born 200 years too early.
0: Oh, interest. I What? That this is this is fascinating. So so I'm looking forward to another interview with you oh, and okay. you know, I mean hopefully Princeton picks up the book.
1: We I, I just got I just got um reviewers' comments back on the proposal and I think it's gonna go through. I need to make a few I need to make a number of changes to the original proposal, but you touch wood, it'll it'll actually get accepted. But yeah.
0: Okay, I've I've got a real wood desk here.
1: Yeah, okay. Okay, yeah, I'll do the same thing here. <laughs>
0: okay. Um yeah. and let me ask you the the, the the very final question, and this is this is the one the the one question mm-hmm. I ask just about every interviewee. It might feel a little bit out of context, but I think it's a good sort of food for thought for for as an end question for people who are listening to this podcast. What advice would you give to a parent whose child was struggling with math? And I say and I say math and not <laughs> physics because I'm a math guy. Yes. Uh-huh.
1: That's fine. Um, well, I think we we we've touched on a little bit of this. Um, well, first of all, I will say this actually does hit pretty close to home because I was a lousy math student. Um, up until ninth grade, um, I got D's or F's in almost every math class that I took. But once I got to ninth grade and got beyond that, um, I think I got A's and B's in every math class that I took up through and including um, college. And it's kind of hard to say why there was this big flip around, except what we, we touched on. We mentioned the book Good Aleister Bach. That was in fact a year Good lesser Bach was published, um, and so my parent, my father, got a copy of the book, and I started reading the book, and I got really, really interested in the subject matter. Um, but you know, it does hit home because I was a lousy math student, and and my parents actually were struggling with this issue about you know the fact that my grades were so lousy that it, you know it was jeopardizing you know it was jeopardizing my ability to get into any college at all not you know let alone a, a, a decent school uh, but it would sorry um, in any event um, so I think one of the first things is something I ta- we, we discussed earlier on which is that you have to make the assumption that everyone can learn mathematics
0: mm-hmm. yep
1: um, you have to start with that baseline assumption that everybody can learn mathematics mathematics is not something that merely a privileged few can, can grasp. Number two, also, I think that there is a, this tendency in our culture to confuse arithmetic with mathematics. Yep. You know, people tend mm-hmm. to think that, oh, you know, you're good at multiplying, so you must be a good mathematician. And I don't agree with that at all. I think actually most of the mathematicians I've known are pretty lousy at arithmetic, um, including some of the very best ones.
0: Um, well, Einstein, right? There, there's yeah. a story about, right, Einstein was doing some, some really complicated formula and they needed to, you know, he needed to bring an accountant into the room to help him <laughs> actually grind through the machinery.
1: Right. right, exactly. And and yeah, and so um, I, I think that both – well, number one, it, it's – one of the things I think, which is kind of a – one tricky part, of course, is that in, in a lot of cases, the parents themselves are kind of afraid to approach the mathematics as well because they haven't learned it very well. They say themselves, mm-hmm. did can have very good teachers. Right. They themselves were very afraid to approach the subject. So I think the parents getting rid of their own fears um, is also kind of an important part. Um, it's It's tricky because students, you know, my experience again, my experience over the last several years has been very um, instructive in that. And students typically learn from their peers much more than they learn from their instructors. Yep. And and students will also take a lot from things like the web more readily than they will take from their teachers or their parents. Also. Um, it, it's a, it's a it's a good question. Um, well, okay. Let me let me, let me refer to this tangentially.
0: Um, do you know Jim Tanton? Oh, absolutely. He's one of my heroes. I've I've interviewed him on my oh, podcast. Really? Yep.
1: He's a very good he's a very good friend of mine. Um he's oh. at St. Mary's College. Um he was here for a couple of years when I was when I first started teaching. He left actually like my second or third year to go on to his career now. But
0: um, Well, he went to Saint Mark's, right? Became became a high school teacher and right. now is, is yeah. with the MAA.
1: We all thought he was crazy, but but he he was crazy like a, he, it. he turned out he was crazy like a fox. I mean he was you know, I, I think what he's done with, it, I think what he's done is just amazing. Well, what what well,
0: what's also amazing that people may not be aware is that, of that is that he has a PhD from, from Princeton, Princeton in math. Yes, absolutely. He's he's actually he and I published a paper together. Um, he is one of the best mathematicians
1: I've ever met. I mean, he's just you know, he is just amazingly sharp. Yep. And he's decided to devote his life to teaching high school students or teaching you know even younger students. I think that's just incredible.
0: Yeah, no, he um, is, he is, he's well, brilliant, and I'm sure he's doing wonderful things for the MAA. Mm-hmm. But he has this, what I would probably first hear
1: people do if they're having problems with their children is that he has these wonderful sets of exercises available on the web for learning math, mm-hmm. which take in a completely different direction yep. than most, uh, than most uh, high schools do. I mean, the biggest problem with textbooks and you know, I, I was looking. I was. I was looking at my daughter. I was helping my daughter with a geometry. Tech, with geometry uh, homework, and um, you know, they they had this set of problems in which um, they were very kind of cookbook approach problems. You know, they said, well, you know, um, if this angle is X and this angle is Y and this angle is twenty degrees, what is the sum of the angles X plus Y plus two times Z or something like that. Right. And it's not an approach which is get which I think approaches the subject of geometry very well because you're not thinking about geometry as geometry. You're thinking about it in terms of finding the values of these quantities in terms of arithmetic rather than thinking, oh, you know, got parallel lines, right? Parallel lines never intersect. Is that always true? Right. We'll put them on a globe. Well, right, right yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, sure, sure. Non-Euclidean, non- sure. Right, put them on a satellite, they won't. Or you've got a triangle here, okay? What can I say about, you know, um, I've got a triangle on a circle. Let's measure this angle. Oh, that's a right angle. Let's, let's draw another triangle in the semicircle, right? Oh, that's another right angle. Are, are those always going to be right angle? If, if that's true, why is it always going to be a right angle? You're not approaching geometry as something which can be intrinsically interesting. You're approaching it as something which you have to kind of, you know, get the numbers out of. And I think that you have to approach these subjects as things that are, that you can speculate about, that you can actually think about in terms of open-ended questions rather than saying, we must get this answer out. I think you need to have some sort of approach which leaves a little bit for the imagination of the students. I think that's what Jim does really, really well, better than anyone else I've met. Um, and um, he, he, he gave a talk actually recently at our college about exploding numbers. I think he's got a, a worksheet on that, which is just bold, over, you know. We had people there with, you know, who, were, who were teachers in the math department, who were you know, faculty members in the math department, who was blown away by this talk. You know, he was showing things that no one had thought about before in terms of either approaching arithmetic or teaching, you know, teaching concepts in arithmetic. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. But I, I think that, I think one of the important things is to stress that these subjects can be approached, I think kind of in an, again, maybe I'm not saying this very well, but kind of in a way in which the answers, you know, the textbooks tell you, you have to find these answers. But the textbooks don't ask you to, I think, speculate or think about what those answers are or what those answers mean in any sort of meaningful way. And I think I think that's an important part to put in the process. One of the things is I'm not entirely sure how, to, you know, I, I know kind of how to do that in physics when I'm ta- when I'm teaching a physics class. I'm not exactly sure how to do those mathematics. Although well, maybe if I prepared a a subject in it, I might I might actually come to a better conclusions. That helpful at all i don't I don't know if that's helpful, but I just said hello,
0: I think it's food for thought okay and 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 i and I love your 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 plug for 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 jim Tanton and and his work. I got to meet him at a when I was mm-hmm. working at um, um, for Wolfram research once upon a time oh okay. there was a conference in London, and he came and and I got to meet him in person and um yeah so so i think lots and lots of food for thought here in mm-hmm. in this interview mm-hmm. and and i hope that everybody picks up a copy of the book and no, and and enjoys it and whether or not they're intimidated by the <laughs> by the equations um i think it i think it's a wonderful start towards people thinking that there's that there's something interesting going on in the science fiction and in these fantasy Movies and and maybe on your blog, you <laughs> can okay. you, you can, you, three, can yeah. you can maybe you can engage readers to mm-hmm. you know write guest articles on movies and books oh, and yeah. um and, and such and and throw out you know, throw out challenges. Is this plausible? Oh, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah. Is this plausible? Why or why not?
1: Well, you can be you should to think about as well. I mean, because I think that's a very that's a very good idea. Um,
0: Okay. All right. So very good. So thank so for, so thank you. One final thing I wanted to say is if people are Googling for your book, Wizards, Aliens and Starships, um, it's it's written under your name Charles Adler, but we've mm-hmm. been going by Chuck's but I but go look for the title. You'll find the book, it's on Amazon, I'm sure it's everywhere. And thank you, Chuck, for for a great interview.
1: Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you All very right. much.